How to attract millennials to a house of worship. The period between when a child leaves home um, and when they actually sort of start their own home is so much longer now that it's hard to say, like, what is going to happen? How am I going to shape a child's identity at the age of 10 that's actually going to help them commit to a religious community by the time they're 25 or 30? From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Our guest this week is Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, focusing on issues regarding child welfare, as well as senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. She also writes about parenting, higher education, religion, philanthropy, and culture. Naomi and I met to look back across her work and research to explore the relationships between children, partners, and religion. Okay, Naomi, thank you very much for being here with us uh, today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Let's start out with, you've written so many books that are so interesting, and as I told you uh, off mic, you're not only a journalist, but you um, are really a researcher. You follow the story and make some conclusions. I think many of our listeners who are people that care about the subject of religion, all religions, will find one of your books particularly interesting, all of them very interesting, Got Religion, How Churches, Mosques, and Synagogues Can Bring Young People Back. That seems like the uh, like the $64,000 question. Well, it certainly is. I mean, a lot of religious institutions right now in the last couple of decades have experienced significant losses. You're seeing a lot of, um, in certain areas anyway, uh, some religious institutions having to close or merge with other ones. And I think a lot of religious leaders and parents and grandparents are asking themselves the question, you know, what is the future of this community? And what can we do to sort of interest young people in uh, in matters of faith and religion? Um, and so, you know, the book sort of tackles it in um, in a way, I, I'm a reporter, so I went uh, to visit institutions all over the country that people told me were relatively successful, that had thriving communities of young people. And by that, I mean mostly, you know, 20 and 30-somethings who were uh, participating regularly, whether in services or uh, kind of community activities, um, and who were kind of close-knit and who really felt a commitment to that institution. And I was looking at, you know, what it was that those places had in common. And uh, you must have some conclusions, or were there any common things? So there were a lot of common things. I mean, one um, one thing that I found certainly, and, and you hear this in a lot of the ways young people talk about community, is that um, these were places that were very local. They were in their neighborhoods, places that they could walk to. Um, and what happened was, you know, the, they were places that, you know, people worked uh, and lived and went to religious services with the same group of people. So whereas the trend, obviously, for a long time in the United States was more toward um, large, uh, maybe mega churches that were people had to drive, you know, 10 or 15 miles or even more to because the preacher was so great or because, you know, the coffee shop was so great or because, you know, the liturgy was so whatever it was. Um, now there was this sort of feeling that, you know, that sort of took you away from your own community and you never 
ran into those people outside of church. And so it prevented you from forming other kinds of bonds. But, you know, when I was in New Orleans, for instance, I visited a church down there. And um, what I found is that people knew each other. They had, you know, would run into each other at the local coffee shop. They would, you know, knew each other from work. They collaborated in other ways. And the creation of those other kinds of bonds really served to strengthen the religious community. You said some interesting things about technology and the internet and all that, and the assumption that many have had that the way to get young people into uh, church these days or temple or mosque is uh, using the internet, using technology, being highly uh, sophisticated in advertising. What's your conclusion from what what you saw in your research? I would say the institutions I visited, you know, they certainly had to be tech savvy in some ways. They would put up Facebook posts. They, you know, their their newsletters couldn't sound like they were coming from, you know, 60-year-olds. But I would say for the most part, what people are looking for in their religious institution is actually something a little bit different from their day-to-day lives. They're looking for that face-to-face connection. And they're not just looking to connect online. They're um, looking for something maybe a little bit more old-fashioned. Um, and I, what I found is a lot of people sort of found the technology to be a distraction from their religious life. Um, You know, actually, obviously, now you go into a lot of churches, people are are looking at, uh, you know, biblical passages or whatever it is on their phones, you know, during the service. Um, And some of the places I visited just, you know, people rejected that. They just said, you know, this is too distracting. I don't actually want to be checking my emails during the service. Um, And so what I think religious institutions have to, you know, think about and leaders have to think about is, you know, what is it that we can be giving these young people that is actually different from their day-to-day lives. And they can realize that religion and faith uh, provides, um, you know, a respite in a, in a different way of, of seeing the world and seeing other people. One of the things that I heard about uh, was at the last, uh, and at a number of the uh, papal youth uh, meetings uh, all over the world, that oddly enough, young people were going to some of the most conservative things, like the exposition of the Eucharist, where people just come in in silence and pray in front of Holy Communion in a monstrance. So are young people also seeking in a sense, the most conservative parts of religion that religion has abandoned, thinking that young people aren't interested in that. Well, I think that's probably been true for a long time now. I think uh, it's it's relatively common knowledge that the religious groups in America that have grown the fastest um, tend to have the most kind of orthodox or conservative take on things. Um, but I think, you know, leaving aside what most people mean by that is probably um, kind of attitudes toward sexual issues generally or other social issues. But I think what what you're seeing also there is this embrace of tradition, of ritual. Those are, again, the things that religion can offer uh, young people that are different from their day-to-day lives, and there is a longing for that. I mean, how do you, um, you know, everybody talks about kind of our nonstop 24-hour culture and the demands of work, and everybody's always going and going, and, and, you know, this is, you have people talking about their tech Sabbaths and things like that. I mean, there is clearly a longing for something that's a little bit different. And I think obviously the the very old rituals in the Catholic Church and certainly other religious communities um, can help people find that, that balance in their lives. As you traveled around the country looking for churches, mosques, temples that had uh, done well with young people, uh, can you give us some specific examples? Tell us some of those stories. So one of the things that I noticed uh, was that 
a lot of young people didn't make very um, clear or as clear distinctions between different denominations as older people do in this country. Um, it's one of the things that's responsible for a lot of the conversation about non-denominational churches and the popularity of those institutions. Um, so there's a group in Charlotte called Charlotte One that actually uh, turned into kind of a collaboration of a lot of the local churches there. Um, and what the, what it was was a kind of entry point for a a lot of young people who were searching for a church. So they could come to a place where um, there would be a big service or a concert or a, a big speaker who would come to kind of a central location in Charlotte. But the local churches would also use that opportunity to funnel people back into their local neighborhoods. So they would say, like, you know, we're so glad you're here. And obviously, this is part of the larger Christian community. But, you know, instead of coming from, you know, the other side of town to this, you know, we could help you find a church that's down the street from you that might also meet your needs and I think it was a it was a nice collaboration to show these churches you know sent the message to young people that yes we do have these distinctive uh, viewpoints we have distinctive things that we offer um, but we can collaborate and we we don't we're not all about our differences and I think that attracted young people in the door but also helped move them out toward um, toward communities that were closer to them after uh, this research, and now it's been a number of years since your research, has, has your attitude changed about the future of uh, young people and faith? And you're a mother of, I guess, some you know, three young children. Uh, how do you feel about it personally and for the future? I just, I think it's such a hard issue. I mean, I... Um there's so many things pulling our children in other directions. So I have a 12, a 10, and a 7-year-old. And I can even see now, I mean, every weekend, you know, uh, I I want to take my kids to synagogue. There are all these other things that are pulling them in other directions. And when do we make exceptions for those things? And how do we express the importance of that as a family? And what are the traditions that we are teaching our children to hold sacred? And, you know, my, my kids have uh, gone to a Jewish day school. And so we're trying to sort of um, ensure that there is this, um, you know, identity that they have built up. But, you know, what I found in my research often is that young adult period, um, and this is something, you know, I talked about a lot in a book on interfaith marriage, um, the period between when a child leaves home um, and when they actually sort of start their own home is so much longer now that it's hard to say, like, what is going to happen? How am I going to shape a child's identity at the age of 10 that's actually going to help them commit to a religious community by the time they're 25 or 30? Uh, let's talk about some of your other books. You already mentioned one, and that is uh, the book about interfaith marriage. The book is called Till Faith Do Us Part. Let us talk about that a little bit and uh, and what some of the things are that you uh, have discovered in your research there. So I think everybody has certainly acknowledged that interfaith marriage is on the rise in this country. Um, depending on, you know, how you count it, you know, you could be talking about 40% of people in this country who are in interfaith marriages. Um, I did a national survey for the book um, where I looked at a lot of different questions about everything from raising kids to kind of what your wedding looked like and who officiated at it. Um, I think one of the most interesting things I found in that book 
was how little people thought about faith differences before they got married. Um, and I think this was very striking, especially in an era where people live together, you know, cohabit for a long time before they actually finally pull the trigger and get married. I mean, we know everything about our partner, the, what kind of toothpaste they use and what shows they watch and all sorts of things. Um, but the people in my survey, uh, for the most part, did not talk about um, how they wanted to raise their children after they got married. And this struck me as such an interesting question. I think that, um, you know, one of the things is, as I mentioned before, that people don't realize how important religion may be to them later on in life. We're getting married at sort of the most secular time in the life cycle. So we've been out of our parents' home for quite some time. Nobody has been telling us to get up for church on Sunday mornings or to go to mosque. Um, and so we're representing ourselves to potential partners as very secular, and the partners are doing that too. And so then, you know, you're in this relationship for a long period of time where really nobody is practicing anything. But all of a sudden with the wedding, um, the birth of children and all sorts of other events that start to happen to us as adults, um, kind of the issue of religion comes crashing back into our lives. And it causes a lot of tensions for people. I mean, I think it, it used to cause more uh, in the sense that there was a lot of outside societal pressure on people in interfaith marriages that they couldn't find a place to fit in. Now I think society is very welcoming of interfaith couples and the pressure is very internal. Um, and I think that the, the decisions and the conflicts, a lot of people in these marriages, including myself, by the way, I think, you know, you think, oh, well, we've decided to raise the kids X and that's really the end of the conversation. And that's really the beginning of the conversation. There, there are so many day-to-day -day issues, uh, that are faith impacts, whether the, you know, the three big things that, uh, marriage therapists say people fight about, which is, um, you know, time, money, and you know, how you, how you raise your kids. Um, and so, uh, religion affects all of those things. I mean, am I, am I giving when they pass the basket? Am I sending my kids to a Jewish summer camp? Um, you know, uh, are we spending the holidays with so-and-so? Are we celebrating Christmas? You know, these are things that come up all the time and you have to, and everybody has kind of different interpretations of them and they change over time too. So I, I just, I think it's a, it's an under-discussed issue in a lot of couples. Um, and it, it sort of tells you a lot also about where our country is right now. Uh, any con any simple conclusions, uh, having lived a life of an interfaith uh, marriage or living a life of interfaith marriage, and uh, researching the subject yourself, any any conclusions other than you better pay attention to it? Well, that's I mean that's kind of the advice part of it. Um, I think in in terms of uh, you know living it, I think it is important, obviously. Maybe this isn't obvious anymore. I like it when parents are on the same page about these things. I do think um, raising kids in two faiths is difficult, and people are um, some people definitely choose that. One interesting thing my survey found is that as children grew older, uh, the respondents were less likely to say they were raising kids in two faiths. And part of that, I think, is the logistical issues. You know, when you have a one-year-old or a two-year-old, you know, you can spend every weekend at church and at synagogue. And you could do all of this and you can have all these commitments. Um, once you get, you know, an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old on your hands, not only are they going to have their own opinions about where they think they should be, but, you know, the time commitments start adding up and it becomes a little less practical to sort of fully belong to two different communities. 
Yes, one of my conclusions always was that, uh, and my advice to my own children, uh, one of whom is, in, well, both of whom are interfaith, is uh, is that you should pick a faith, whatever it might be, and go for it all the way rather than faith light in two religions. Yeah, I think... Obviously, now, um, you know, there are so many religious communities you can belong to where you're going to get a kind of light version of it anyway, that um, having two light versions is is not necessarily going to help anyone. Um, You know, I I think the other thing that that is important to recognize here about interfaith marriage is that it's it's. It's a it's a mixed blessing. I mean, I yeah, it was almost the title of the book, but I think it was already used. I mean, it it tells you how integrated, how tolerant this country has become, and interfaith marriage is actually a vehicle for for tolerance too. Because suddenly, if you have a relative um, who is married to somebody of another faith that you may not know a lot about, that becomes um, more personal. And the surveys show that people have warmer feelings toward an entire religion if. They know somebody who's in it and who who they're close with, so it is um, sort of a way that assimilation keeps happening in this country, and a way that we have um, brought in you know new minority religious groups into this country. Let's talk about another one of your books, and you have many, uh, and, and this one is about religion and education, specifically higher education. Um, I believe you indicated that the fastest growing uh, colleges in America are really religion-based colleges. But at any rate, give us your some of your conclusions, please, uh, about some, the research that you did on this subject. So this is a very, very old book, actually, relatively speaking. It probably came out uh, almost 15 years ago now. Um, but I've tried to sort of keep tabs on what's going on in the area of religious higher education. It's it's so fascinating, I mean, just the diversity of religious higher education that we have. I mean, I visited uh, t- about two dozen different schools, um, Mormon, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, uh, evangelical, fundamentalist. Um, and again, maybe this gets back to what we were talking about earlier. I always wondered, you know, why were kids going to these schools? And, and a lot of adults, I felt like at the time, were kind of wondering, um, why would you voluntarily choose a school? Um, you must, your parents must be forcing you to go there to live under these kind of strictures. Um, but most of the kids I talked to really had chosen the school for themselves. And you could say maybe an 18 year old doesn't know what they're doing, but they wanted to kind of live with certain rules, um, with the benefits of that kind of close knit community. And it wasn't necessarily with the goal of providing shelter from other potential worldviews. I think there were probably some people who entered into it like that, but a lot of the faculty I talked to were really quite determined to present alternative viewpoints. Um, And I think, you know, in our current debates about free speech on campus and whether we have diversity of thought in higher education, I think religious colleges actually provide this interesting example. For, For one thing, they're very open about what what is accepted and not is not accepted on campus, and I. I find that a lot of secular universities have these rules, but they're unwritten. Um, And I think religious campuses are much more transparent about it. But I also think that they are, they recognize that they're in a significant minority um, in American culture today. And they feel it is part of their duty to present alternative viewpoints to the students on campus so that they can understand what the arguments are. Um, And 
the, on the flip side, now I think you have a lot of secular universities that have adopted an almost kind of religious zealotry about their beliefs um, and are not presenting those alternative viewpoints. So I think we have some interesting things to learn from religious higher education. Well, we've talked about three of your really incredible books. And uh, how many have you written, by the way? I think it's seven. Wow. So we've only covered three of them, uh, mostly the ones that were on religious subjects. Where is your mind going now and your research going now? You write regular columns, you blog, you're an uh, intellectual working for foundations, etc. Where, um, where is your thinking going right now? Where is your writing and research going now? So right now, the focus of my research is actually on child welfare. I write a lot about foster care, adoption, family court, um, child protective service issues. Um, but there is a kind of religious element here, too. I mean, as you may know, a lot of the foster care and adoption work in this country is being done by religious families in strongly religious communities. And I have spent the last couple of years doing traveling and interviewing people. Again, this is kind of my MO. But I really um, I'm just I've been overwhelmed by people who participate in this kind of work, who have opened their home to total strangers, to treating them like family, kids who clearly have severe problems um, as a result of the way that their lives, life trajectories have gone so far. Um, but I've also been impressed because the religious institutions that do foster care have actually really um, had new strategies that have come up in, in recent years. I think uh, two big changes in this world have really come out of religious-based institutions. Uh, the first is a sense that the way we were advertising foster care in the past was not very effective, putting up a picture of a child on the Wednesday, you know, nightly news and saying, hey, does anyone want this kid is not so effective. Um, and so what people started doing is going into the pulpit and saying, you know, these are the seven kids in our zip code tonight who need homes. Um, and that is a much more urgent request. And I think people felt it much more strongly. The second thing that I think these um, faith-based groups were doing is they realized that foster care is so hard. And what they offered was a kind of support. They actually required many of them now foster parents to come with other people, neighbors, members of Bible studies, you know, other people they know who promise to help them in their foster care journey, whether it's doing respite care, providing meals, you know, helping with housework, whatever it is. Um, and that actually makes, makes sure that the foster parents have much more staying power. So, you know, my the work in religion kind of continues in this way, too. And, um, and I think that there's a real potential for changing this whole landscape through religious institutions. Naomi Schaefer Riley, thank you for being with us and uh, thank you for telling us some about some of your work and may your work continue. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Our guest was Naomi Schaefer Riley, journalist and author, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. The conversation continues on our Facebook page and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.